questions, which again, I chose to deal with by looking at doctrines that kind of drove the denominations rather than just a listing of denominations themselves. And I did that for a couple of reasons. Number one, there are just more denominations than we could ever give attention to. And I think, you know, most of us have lived long enough to recognize that denominations themselves go through massive changes over time, or at least potentially go through massive changes. And so what a denomination was in its beginning is not necessarily what it is in its present form, and so how to account for that. So I just have been kind of focusing on uh, the doctrines that touch on that. So we worked through God and Christ and salvation and some of the ordinances, and we've turned now finally our attention to end-time events, which has a huge impact on the shaping of denominations. And in conjunction with that, there have been several questions that have arisen, not about denominations, but about end-time events. And so I just wanted this morning, before we went any further, to, to, to address them to, to the best of my ability. Okay, so, all right. So really, as I, as I sorted through, and, and by the way, I, I am not indifferent to your questions. I have a couple of questions that do not pertain to this particular subject that have been asked that need to be addressed, and I will get to them. I promise you, but for now, my, my, uh, my attempt this morning is just to kind of deal with the questions that have arisen about end-time events, and then we will go on from there. So, and, and I'm using the word address because uh, to, to say that I can answer the questions definitively would, would place me at odds with everybody who has ever interacted with the subject, right? If anybody could really answer the issues definitively, you would think that discussion would end, um, but it does not. So, all right. So the first one is not related to a text, and which is why I didn't have you turn to a text. We'll come to a text in a minute. But is is more of a general question, which is, is there any harm in being rather ambivalent to the details of the second coming of Christ? In other words, if if we believe that Jesus will return, and we are convinced that it is a literal return, how much do we need to stretch ourselves to, to understand all of the details? Is there anything wrong with not going there? And, and so, uh, so I'm going to begin by answering that question equivocally. Not unequivocally, but equivocally. I can see a case for both sides. My own testimony, and of course I got saved in the late 1970s, um, and these were the days in which Jack Van Impe had a tremendous voice among fundamental churches. And Jack Van Impe was the recognized and acknowledged expert in all things dealing with the end times. Um, <clears throat> I think part of the problem with any of us thinking we have all the answers also emerges from Dr. Van Impe and that he tended to interpret all time events through the lens of the Soviet Union. And that obviously didn't go anywhere. But in, in any event, it was in the 1970s, it was a very serious topic. And I think 1973, um, Israel and Egypt signed the Camp David Peace Accords. Maybe it was 1976. Signed the Israel Camp, the Camp David Accords, which brought peace to Israel and, and Egypt. And this was touted as having great 
uh, eschatological significance, and we were all on edge. And I mean, there were literally people preaching. There were literally people preaching that on the day that they signed those Camp David Accords, Jesus is coming that night. Don't think he did. Um, <clears throat> not sure about that, but don't think he did. Um, and so that was kind of the climate in which I got saved, and it was very interesting to me and fascinating, and then I got saved, and I immediately lost all interest. And uh, when I would do my Bible reading, I always dreaded getting to the book of Revelation. Uh, <clears throat> so that's my own personal kind of testimony. I would point out also that Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, there are still in existence 66 volumes of his sermons. 66 volumes of his sermons. Virtually everything that he preached was, taken, was recorded by hand, was published many times over. So you have, I don't know how many thousands of sermons that is. I have a good friend who has read all of them, who is a Spurgeon expert, so who could tell you what the exact number of those sermons is. But if you were to read, if you were just sit down and take whatever time it took to read all 66 volumes of Spurgeon, you would have a very difficult time putting together a coherent composition of what he believed about end-time events. That was not anything he really dealt with much. It was not anything, apparently, that interested him. And so for all that Spurgeon said and all that he did, <clears throat> I don't think Spurgeon ever took his Park Street congregation through a systematic study of Revelation to, to, or, or the book of Daniel for that extent. So, so there's, one, there's one side of the coin. And, you know, I, I heard an old Presbyterian preacher one time talk about being in a church preaching and a man came up to him and said, Here, here's what I know about end time events. Jesus wins. And so that's, right, that's, that's, that's pretty good. On the other hand, right, and this is why I say I speak to you equivocally. On the other hand, 2 Thessalonians 2.5, Paul said, Concerning the man of sin, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? So Paul did teach on some future events, and Paul did expect people to retain some knowledge of them. And apparently Paul did expect that there was a little bit of cohesion to what we understood. So <clears throat> the Lord did write these things for our instruction, and they really are for our instruction, not for our embittered battling. Um, and so I think that occasional, I don't think that God requires any of us or all of us to become or attempt to become experts in end time events, but you know, to, to periodically deal with them and to think through some of these issues is not to our detriment. So, and I just, you know, I, I guess I would add to that, as a pastor, um, I, I feel like I have some responsibility to, to be able to articulate some, I want to be very careful because I'm just going off on a little bit of a tangent, right? I have a great respect for systematic theology, which is the study of the Bible by topic, right? And there are some good systematics, and I've recommended one to you. I would recommend it again. Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, while some of his conclusions I think are wrong. 
Wayne Grudem does an excellent job of dealing with the totality of an issue, of, of covering it exhaustively and graciously, and it is an easy read, and it's worth having in your own personal library. But some of the people who embrace systematic theology tend to want everything to be a complete and coherent system all the time, and I think that's the peril. Whether we're talking about end-time events, or whether we're talking about the doctrine of election and salvation, and we just, we just want everything to fit neatly into one little container. And the Bible kind of defies that. So I think there's benefit in trying to have some understanding. I don't think it's to our detriment to just completely ignore the subject. But I don't know that it weighs down upon any of us in answer to the question to to really feel like we have completely embraced uh, every single answer. When, when again, we are, we are surrounded by good and well-meaning people who obviously don't have every answer. And that would include people in our, in our perspective. So I don't know if that answers the question, but it addresses the question. And that is, that is my goal. Um, I don't think we're all equally interested. I don't think we all need to be equally interested. I think that we need to believe um, the Bible when it speaks on these matters, particularly about the literal return of Christ. Um, but again, we all know that the Bible's, and we'll, we're going to come to this, the Bible seems to say things at times almost side by side that contradict each other. And... Right? You know, we all hear about unbelievers talk about contradictions in the scriptures. I know I've told you this. One of my one of the first professors that I had at UNO, who was the chairman of the history department, who was a brilliant man and a good teacher, made a comment one evening about all of the inconsistencies in the New Testament. And I asked him about it. I said, I would love to talk to you with you about the inconsistencies. And he looked at me and he said, Well, I've never read the New Testament. So okay, so we're not talking about that category of people. Okay. We who read it know that God says things at times that one doesn't seem to be able to be true if the other is true. And I would just caution us against letting our mind be the final judge of God's word, but to let God's word be the judge. So anyway, all right. Now, with, so with that, let me ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, I'm not suggesting for a moment that I answered that question accurately, but I attempted to address it. Um, I would say to any of you, don't, don't feel distressed if you don't have a tremendous interest in the subject or if you don't feel like you could just stand up and off the top of your head teach a Sunday school class on it. Not very many of us could. So... So that brings me to my second question. My second question was this. Does the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15.52 refer to the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11.15? Does the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15.52 refer to the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11.15? And so 1 Corinthians 15.52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And there it is, at the last trump. So I thought that this might be a question that we would be benefited to, to give a little bit of 
additional time to. So let me ask you to begin by turning back to the book of Exodus in chapter number 19. Exodus chapter 19, and let's start in verse number 14. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day, come not at your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, And God answered him by a voice, and the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up, and we will stop there. And then I'm just going to give you two references, Leviticus 3.24 and Leviticus 25.9, and let me ask you to turn to Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10. And beginning in verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver. Of a whole piece shalt thou make them, that which thou mayest use them, that, I'm sorry, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. And when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And if they blow but with one trumpet, then the princes, which are the heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves unto thee. When ye blow an alarm, then the camps that lie on the east part shall go forward. When ye blow an alarm the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall take their journey. They shall blow an alarm for their journeys. But when the congregation is to be gathered together, ye shall blow, but ye shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be to you for an ordinance forever throughout your generations. And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth them, ye shall blow an alarm with the trumpet, and ye shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and ye shall be saved from your enemies." Also in the day of your gladness and in your solemn days and in the beginning of your months you shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings or the sacrifices of your peace offerings that they may be to you for a memorial before your God. I am the Lord your God. And you notice there in verse number 8 that the blowing of trumpets is given as an eternal ordinance. So 
Before we talk about the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 or the trumpet in Revelation chapter 11, we just want to make sure that we understand, folks, that God has been communicating with his people or really calling them through trumpets from the very beginning. And the trumpets, the call of the trumpet has two primary purposes in the Old Testament. It was to call the people to assemble and it was to call the people to war. They were called to gather or they were called to gather to go to war. They are used in Jericho, at Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. Right, there was the blowing of the trumpet. They're used with reference to Gideon in Judges chapter 7 in times of battle. So God has communicated, if I can put it that way, God has communicated with his people through the sound of a trumpet since the time that he instituted them as his people. When they became a nation, and actually Exodus 19 is part of the process of them for, God forming them into a nation, then they are assembled with a trumpet. There are then four trumpet passages in the New Testament that deal with either the gathering of God's people or the call to battle. So turn now, if you would, to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 29. And we are, of course, at this point in what we know as the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24 and 25, which we will come back to. The the great passage dealing with end time events and the second coming of Christ. Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Right? So, so, the, so the, the point of time is set for us. And we might fight forever and ever and ever until we know the answer from the Lord's mouth. Whatever that tribulation is. But whatever Jesus is talking about in verse number 29 is going to come after that. It is going to come immediately after that. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, the power of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So at the end of the tribulation of those days, whatever that tribulation is, right, there are going to be shaking, shattering, visible signs in creation and the sound of a trumpet. And this is a trumpet that is not a call to war. This is a call that gathers the people there will be the sound of a trumpet and the gathering of God's people from around the world. So there is a trumpet passage. The next trumpet passage, or another trumpet passage, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, of course, churches like ours have historically understood this to be a passage teaching the rapture or what our critics like to call the secret rapture of the church. It does not appear to be the same event as the trumpet of Matthew 24, 29. But it is a trumpet. And again, folks, it is a trumpet of gathering. When the trumpet sounds, God will gather his people. He will gather them, in this case, out of the grave. Then there is the passage that we started with, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 52. And I think that I need to, I don't think, I know that I need to address something that I have said that probably, that I think is in the passage, but is not the primary point of the passage. Matthew chapter 15, verse number 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. Behold, I show you a mystery. And a mystery in the Bible, folks, we know, is something that we would not know except God told us. It's, it's not like a real-life mystery where investigators search out all the evidence, talk to all of the witnesses, build an airtight case, and solve the mystery. I mean, we get that concept from it, but, but that's not the meaning of the word. When, when the Bible talks about a mystery... It is something that if God didn't tell us, we wouldn't know. And, and I've used it, and, and I think that, because I do think that the passage is touching upon the rapture. But upon further study and closer study, I don't think that the rapture is the main part of the mystery. The main part of the mystery is verse number 51. <clears throat> Behold, I show you a mystery. Here's the mystery. Here's what I'm revealing to you that not everybody knew. And of course, it doesn't just end at verse number 51. There's more to the mystery than that. But the mystery is this. We will not all sleep or die. But we will all be changed. So God is now revealing something to us that nobody would have ever figured out. 
Because, folks, almost everybody has died. People die. There are two people that didn't die, but everybody died. Jesus died. Everybody dies. Now, here's, here's something that God is going to tell us that we would have never known if he didn't tell us this, and that is not everybody's going to die. Not everybody is going to die. But everybody is going to be changed. Most people will die before they are changed, but not everybody will die before they are changed. And not only will everybody be changed, folks, part of the mystery is not just that not everybody dies, but all are changed. Part of the mystery is the astounding speed with which this happens. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. Now, right, I mean, right, before we, because these are kind of the things that we tend to do. I'm not accusing you of it, I'm just saying these are what we do, right? Is this about the rapture? Oh, there couldn't possibly be a rapture and we have a big fight about this. Let's allow ourselves to be impressed with what we have just read. Science tells us that our world is 13.7 billion years old. And whenever anything is going to happen, we just need time. We need time. Change takes time. And there's a sense, folks, in which it's true. Change does take time. We do not, as a rule, see the world the same through 60-year-old eyes that we did through 20-year-old eyes. And that's because over the course of time, we change. Change takes time. What would you like to change? It takes time. Would you like to change habits? Would you like to change patterns? Would you like to change eating habits? Would you like to change behavior habits? As a rule, the norm for humanity is that these things take time. And I'm not trying to defend science. That's their pat answer. Well, we just need more time. All right, here, here is the mystery, folks. Not everybody will die. Everybody will be changed. And when that change happens, it will happen at an astounding rate of speed. In a moment. That's a Greek word, by the way, that you know, because it is the word Adam. Literally the word Adam. The smallest thing known to the Greek world. They couldn't yet split the atom. They didn't know that the atom had parts. They just knew that the smallest thing that existed was an atom. In the smallest possible span of time, God will change everything. That's the mystery. <clears throat> That's the reality of the mystery. But when does it happen? Back to 1 Corinthians 15:52. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So when this spontaneous change happens, it is going to be accompanied by the sound of a trumpet and the raising of the dead. And that word last there is a word that we also know. At least we use it all the time because it is the word eschaton. The word that gives us eschatology. 
the study of the last things. So God has been gathering his people with a trumpet since he constituted them as his people in the book of Exodus. And there's going to be a trumpet that blows at the end of whatever the tribulation is, Matthew 24, 29, that gathers all of his people. And there's going to be a trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and 1 Corinthians 15 that raises the dead. Right? What those two passages, if they have nothing else in common, folks, what they have in common is this. They are both dealing with the resurrection of the dead, dead saints. And then that brings us then to the passage in question, which is Revelation chapter 11. But the question is, is the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, the, the seventh trumpet in 11, Revelation eleven fifteen? So let's look at Revelation eleven fifteen. <clears throat> and the seventh angel sounded. That's the trumpet. Remember, we had seals that gave way to vials that gave way to trumpets. The seventh angel sounded, <clears throat> and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, <clears throat> excuse me, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and the wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, to the saints, them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. So that was the question, right? So all of that to get to my understanding of the answer of the question. The question. The question. It's the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, the same as the seventh trumpet in Revelation eleven fifteen. I don't think so, and there are a couple of reasons why. One is because the purpose of the trumpet in Revelation 11 is different than the purpose of the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15. And we learn from the Old Testament that God used the trumpet to gather his people in some kind of peaceable assembly. It was time to worship. It is time for a feast. Or they were used in times of war. There was an alarm. And the military gets ready. Folks, the seventh trumpet is the seventh in a series of trumpets that bring about God's judgment There is no judgment in the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15.52. Now, <clears throat> the burning question with reference to that kind of a question, however, is this. What does the word last mean? 
How is Paul using it? Does Paul mean that the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15.52 is the very last trumpet that will ever be sounded? Now, I don't think so. But, but you, you could argue that that is exactly what he means. In which case, it would mean that <clears throat> there is no res- there is certainly no rapture. There is only the resurrection of the dead at the end of the tribulation. So that would make <clears throat> that would that would put First Thessalonians four, First Corinthians fifteen, in that same category. And, and again, and I, I realize that this sounds like I'm manipulating the definition of the word to suit my purposes, but you can go to the internet and you can look up the word eschaton and the way that it is used. And it is a word that is used to refer to last things. Not always, in fact, oftentimes not at all, the last or final in a sequence. It just had a much broader use than being the tail end of a list, the way that we might think of it. So that it 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 is and it is certainly, right? And you know, I'm just gonna throw this out there. You know, I'm not sure that that everybody would buy this explanation of it. But for those on the receiving end, it is their last trumpet. Now, again, I'm, I'm comfortable that 1 Corinthians 15, that passage, includes, as does 1 Thessalonians 4, includes the rapture. But, folks, what is, if, if I am right, and if those who hold that position are right, when that trumpet sounds, it will be for us the last trumpet. We will be with the Lord forever. We will be gathered together with him forever. There will be no more gatherings for us. And our period of warfare has ended. So for us, those on the end of that, it will be their last trumpet. And Paul may be meaning to use it that way. So again, not suggesting to you that I have definitively answered this, but I have addressed it. I do not think that they are the same trumpets, primarily because of the two purposes that are involved. And that brings me then to the third question. Back to Matthew chapter 24. Back to Matthew chapter 24. So here's a question, right? How important is it that we give diligent attention to understanding eschatology. As I'm standing up here talking, the answer is increasingly clear, less and less important the longer I talk because I'm obviously just digging deep holes every place I go. Is 1 Corinthians 15.52 and Revelation 11.15 the same trumpet? I do not believe so. Third question, 
Is Matthew 24 about the second coming or the rapture? Yes. And I say that in all sincerity. Yes. I think it is primarily about the second coming. And if I do not make it exclusively about the second coming, somebody's going to come and take my dispensational credentials away from me. But I think there is a, I think that there, okay, and again, folks, right? So I'm going to put it this way because we think this way and we talk this way because at the end of the day, the things we believe have to have some sensibility to us. I mean, I know that we take things by faith, but nothing about what God demands of faith removes from us our mind and our mind's ability to interact with God's word. And Jesus seems to be in Matthew 24 at different times saying two completely different things. For instance, Jesus says emphatically in Matthew 24 that you will know when he is coming. For instance, Matthew 24, 6. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Excuse me. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. The end is not yet. Verse number 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Then shall the end come. If Jesus is coming at the end, and I know that the end is not yet, and I know that certain things have to happen, the gospel be preached in all the world, then I know that he can't come. 24, 25. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. Which we could just stop there, folks. If I didn't know when the Lord is coming, why wouldn't I believe when somebody told me he's someplace? Why would I have any reason to doubt that he was in that place if I didn't know when he was coming? Hey, the Lord's over there. Well, maybe he is. Instead, Matthew 24, 25 tells me, or verse 26 tells you, don't don't go looking for him. He's not there. Well, how do I know he's not there? Verse number 26, or verse number 27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So somebody says, hey, look, Jesus, he's he's keeping it on the low down. He's in a basement over here. I can go. No, he's not. I know he's not in a basement over there because when he comes, he's going to come like the lightning crossing the sky. That's what I know. That's what the Lord said. Verse 28, for wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, they shall gather together his elect, his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. <clears throat> now learn a parable of the fig tree when his branch is yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that he is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And without getting all into it, right, <clears throat> Jesus goes on then in verse number 35 to tell, to tell us that we can rely on his word more than we can rely on the rising of the sun. And there are some people who on the basis of verse number 34 argue that Jesus has already come because that generation wouldn't pass away. Whenever it was, folks, <clears throat> what is pretty obvious to that, at that point in the text, right, is that Jesus is really going to come back, and when he does, everybody is going to know that he's back. Nothing secret about it, nothing private about it, nothing doubtful about it, he's back. And everybody will see him, like the sun and like the lightning going across the sky. Not only will everybody see him, but everybody will react to him. All the nations will mourn at his return. Not a day of great gladness, but a day of great sadness. So says Jesus. But then, folks, then he says, nobody knows when I'm coming. Matthew 24, 42. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Matthew 24, 44. Therefore be also ready for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. Well, that's an unexpected coming, isn't it? Because if I can look at all of the signs of the time and I can look at the heaven going through its catastrophic contortions and I can see Jesus coming across the sky like lightning and everybody that looks at him will mourn when they see him. How is it possible that anybody is not thinking about that? So here's a very common way of addressing this which is that we know about when, but not exactly when. But I just find that a completely unsatisfactory answer. You know, my father was an over-the-road truck driver. And when I became a teenager, I would be assigned periodic chores. Mow the grass when I get, by the time I get back. And if I knew that my dad was going on a three-day trip, it didn't, the, the fact that I didn't know exactly what, tick of the second hand of the clock he would arrive did not mean I didn't know when he was coming. Now that's an illustration and it could be that that is what the Lord means. You will know about but not exactly when. But it doesn't seem to fit. But but folks if he is alluding to the fact that there is a rapture 
that is going to happen when men are not necessarily expecting it. And that does not require the moving and shaking of heaven and earth. So I am not uncomfortable with Matthew 24 preparing us for both and for pointing out that the vast majority of the epistles urge upon us to be ready for the Lord's return, not primarily upon the basis of the signs of times that we will see, but upon the fact that we do not know when he will show up. The Matthew 24, 42 through 44 preparation for his appearance. So that would be the way that I would understand it. That is probably the way that I would deal with it. And I would just come back to a quote that I have come across that is very dear to me. I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right. So I wouldn't stand here and deliberately mislead you, but I am just a mortal, right? I am just a mortal dealing with the same text that you are. But that would be my understanding. Okay, so now it is 1046. 